Before you listen to this great episode of Partner with Survivor, we'd just like to tell you about a powerful new practice tool the Safe and Together Institute has launched. Our perpetrator pattern mapping tool has been available for 10 years, but now it's available for the first time in a web-based version. What it does is really help you map perpetrators' patterns of behavior onto child family functioning, talk about its intersections with mental health, substance abuse, and other issues, address intersectionalities, worker safety, all in an easy-to-use online package that protects the confidentiality of your information and lets you wrap it all up in a neat little package, basically, to print it out and to kind of document all those different pieces of information. This is a tool that can be used by both survivors and practitioners. And for the very first time, it's available immediately online without any other prior training. The training is embedded in this powerful practice tool so that teams uh, that have not been trained in Safe and Together can immediately begin mapping in an effective way. That's right. It's like having a safe and together coat in your back pocket is what I like to say. There you go. So we really encourage you to go to our virtual academy, academy.safetytotherinstitute.com. Check it out. You know, you can subscribe to it immediately or you can check out a free demo version for 30 days. So please reach out to us and try this new tool. Now enjoy this great episode of Partner with Survivor. We're back. And we're back. There we go. Here we go again for another episode of Partner with a Survivor. Yeah. You're David Mandel and of you're, the Safe and Together Institute. <laughs> and you're Ruth Stern Mandel <laughs> of the Safe and Together Institute. You're the e-learning strategic relationship and communications manager. I get, See, I'm really good at that. You know, so anyway, we've taken a few weeks hiatus from recording. We were actually on the road um, and we had planned many, many days to actually record a podcast and, and we didn't. And weather and travel chaos yes. usurped that plan. Yes. And mm-hmm. so we're back home. We're in the office. Tiberius the dog is here. It's a very rainy day. And yes. the leaves in New England have gone through their peak. There was a lot of red. Now there's a lot of yellow and um, and red undertones. And it's foggy. And the, the Farmington River is lots of full. Lots of full. Lots of full. We we are um, as um, we we are always when we're recording from home. We're on Tunxis land and mm-hmm. Tunxis mm-hmm. people were the you know, stone yeah. land. The traditional custodians of land here are are the uh, Tunxis people are tied to the larger Algonquin nation. And I was just reading something recently. I don't know if you remember this came across our internal mm-hmm. messaging system about mm-hmm. people talking about that acknowledgement of country uh, not being tokenism. You know, it mm-hmm. really needs to talk about need to take action, need to recognize the live uh, cultures of, yeah. you know, I'm talking this way that's, that's oh, well, you know, these are people of the past. Now, these are, you this know, the Algonquin people are, are, are live and, and yeah. are present and yeah. there are active tribes here in Connecticut and, and also just the harm that, that's done, um, has I, been done. And, right, by thinking that that's in the past. Right, but also the, the real harms and, and not, not yeah. working to repair them. Yeah. And so... Part of our commitment is is really that working to repair the heel, to to challenge structural inequalities, and and far from perfect, and never enough. It's always that's always, always a feeling, learning. and always learning, you know. And I I yeah. um had you know just been doing some work with some First Nation organizations and practitioners who are wonderful in Australia recently, and mm-hmm. and and learning so much. And I and and I just I was listening, and and we talk about trying to deeply listen, which is a it's a skill and a practice. And I was listening and mm-hmm. and they shared with me about how there was a, a man in their community, this is an Aboriginal community where they you know, where he had been severely violent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that the the women of that community surrounded him to protect him mm-hmm. from the harm that was gonna come at him from the wider society. Mm-hmm. And, and I really want to emphasize emphasize the and and also hold him accountable for the violence he committed. Right. And and I and I really I, I really felt and heard that, you know, that mm-hmm. that both things were 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 real and true and important for them. And I think a lot of times that kind of um circling that man who's been violent 
to protect him from the colonization, you know, structural racism, the mm-hmm. violence of the wider mm-hmm. society, is is um, dismissed as collusion. Right. Either when it happens on the group level or or on that individual level of a of a, of a mm-hmm. partner, mm-hmm. and I I really. Uh, hearing that really deepened my commitment even to just say we need to mm-hmm. hold both things well, I think at the same time. I think there's so much anger and um, and energy in the reality that um, people who have been violent to us have often been given quite the benefit of the doubt about their behaviors and and you know excuses excuses have been made right. for their choices. Right. Um, and that's super offensive, obviously, to survivors, and it doesn't create safety for for survivors and their kids. And at the same time, this reductionistic practice, which is the domestic violence field and the child protection field, doesn't really work holistically with humans. It doesn't take into account that children want to have contact with their parents. Um, it doesn't take into account that we want people to change and that we haven't even scratched the surface of doing holistic practice and behavior change and accountability on a mass cultural scale that would show us who's capable of change and who's not, who's dangerous and who, and who can change. We're 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 not doing it. We're so far from that. (laughs) And and for me, the, the call to action as, as a, as a, a a person who is connected to the dominant culture in many places and to mm-hmm. and is per, is perceived and seen as white and is connected to that culture in a lot of ways is a really call to action and I want to share this with with people who are in a similar position that is not to minimize and, and to in fact listen to and support the goal of community healing yeah and, and community led solutions community led solutions and and the the the, the legitimacy <laughs> that needs to be legitimized by white people of that need desire to to protect the whole community and to heal and address structural racism colonization Mm -hmm. in the solutions that come with ending domestic violence and so you know for me it's a both and thing and really hearing that and there was a follow-on conversation that was you know was really poignant for me and the person was saying well you know i'm not sure it worked in all the ways and i said well I don't dismiss it because mainstream solutions don't work no. all the time either. You know, so I think we really have right, to be right. really, really a lot of rigorous. And a lot of money yeah. in mainstream and I, and solutions does not I reference officer involved domestic violence yeah. and the response yeah. of police and yeah. it's, it, it, its limitations. And so I really, I'm, you know, I want to say this because I want to, I want to invite other white practitioners or the mainstream practitioners to really think about how do you hold this, uh, the need for, for, uh, reparations, the need for justice around and, cultural inequalities, and, and and ending domestic violence perpetrators' behaviors. Like, how do we hold all those things at once? Because right. that, that's that's where I want to be, and I want to invite other people to be be there right. with with me or with right. us. So, we yeah, have, we have not even, even the topic. introduced the topic. I know. Yet. I about, we, this is going to be a long we, podcast. We, oh my god! We just I. <laughs> I've been coached to try to start thinking about minisodes, <laughs> which I never heard of till the other day by our by our you know, media people. So and, we can get we can get yeah. 15, 20, half an hour minute uh, podcast in there. So uh, wait a second, have, I even heard five bit. minute podcast. Oh just my goodness, so you I don't know. know that that's possible. So, David. W- 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 but that's not today. That's not today. And that's not today's going to be an hour longer. No, that wasn't the intent of today either, right? The intent of today wasn't. <laughs> To do a Minnesota, no, okay. We, we both came. Okay, in. but let's introduce okay. the topic, my love, because because we're, we're rambling. Big. Truly so we rambling. Have, we have three interlocking subjects today. Um, one is post separation course of control. Right. The other is um, is this idea of risk assessment, particularly in the context of post separation course of control. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has implications for other places where people are doing risk assessments. Right. And and that I'll just to preview that is the idea of what's the difference between thinking about risk versus harm. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is is um in some sense the most uh, forward thinking part of this in my mind is just that concept of collaborative co-parenting. So a lot right. of these things are fitting in the context of custody and access, parenting right. time decisions, family court is is the dominant paradigm that what's best for the kids um, is this collaborative co-parenting. Mm-hmm. And how do you bend that concept? How do you employ that concept? When you have somebody who is a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, I'd say let's I'd bend say, collaborative co-parenting well, around the okay, criminal. Right. And That's think, what's happening. And I think right that, that what I want to want to talk about is how do you actually use that to increase the ability of systems to articulate accountability for that person as a parent, right? And use that as a measure of measuring actually failure of compliance. With, with this the dominant, itself, right. the court and yeah. the dominant child-centered paradigm. You know, if we, and, and I'll just kind of say this and then we can jump back to the beginning. If we truly believe, which I do, that when, when parents who are divorcing and separating can actually work together, keeping the kids' interests at the center of it. Right. And the research actually is consistent with this, by the way, that those kids can do really well, right. even in a divorcing environment. Right. In fact, it's not the it's not it's the, not the divorce itself. It's not the, the divorce or staying together. That it's it's it's, it's, the, it's the animosity and right. fighting between right. the two parents. In fact, yep. I remember seeing research years ago that said that kids who grow up in households where there's abuse and violence, when the couple stays together, and there's abuse and violence when the couple separates, that those outcomes look similar, more similar than kids who got or parents who got divorced and they work together. And, right. and parents who work together when they, they stay together, that those kids' outcomes look similar. And so part of it is, is this idea that it's not whether you're together or not. It's about the, 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 the parenting the the and, the, parenting. and the, the quality of co-parenting. Right. So, so I think that we can bend this powerful concept of qualitative, uh, cooperative co-parenting. I, I am sorry. This is the joys of, of working with Tiberius as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a uh, co-host. And he just got up and so sort of turned himself around a million times, a million times before he sat down. Um, but that bend this, this, um, concept of collaborative co-parenting to increase our ability to hold perpetrators accountable. Right. And you're right. I'm using a lot of words today. Okay. Let's so go. let's get okay. right into it. So I, Coercive, post-separation coercive control. Which a lot of a lot of professionals don't recognize yeah. and don't even understand as a concept at this point. So, you know, we do have to frame that um, educating yourself as a professional around post-separation coercive control, it's harms, it's risk factors, and it's danger to children needs to become a standard part of our domestic violence practice. Right. And so it means at the, at the foundation, drop the idea that when the couple separates. That safety increases. That automatically increases. Because sometimes it does. Sometimes it, it does. does. And we really want to be clear about that. And, and defining, defining safety thus far has only been a physical definition right. of safety. Right. And we know that post-separation course of control comes with high risks for fatality for children or That's for right. adult survivors. Right. But also at the same time, people need to land in the reality that it is in and of itself harmful and it is illegal for somebody to remove the personal liberties of another person, continuously threaten and harass them, even if they're using legal means to do so, which is the family court or other court systems or the police or child protection. And that our cultural shift has to become... The professionals recognize post-separation coercive control and manipulation of systems, and they stand as a barrier between that perpetrator and the victim by engaging in practice behaviors, which draw boundaries around that behavior right. and say, this is unacceptable. We see what you're doing. That's so, the world I want. That's the world you want. In the nutshell. And, that, and that's the world we're trying to create. That's what we're trying to create. We're trying to create that world. So, so... Making the connection back to the the, the the severe examples that you reference about death, yeah, uh, murders of of adult survivors <clears throat> and, and children. children. Yeah. One of the most basic things, and I know I'm saying things that a lot of our listeners understand, but it, it's worth repeating. When a lot of people mistake that the ending of the relationship equals child safety automatically, right. or or is an automatic improvement of the safety of the adult survivor, they're not thinking through a course of control lens. Because once you think about this issue of domestic violence, the issue of entrapment, mm-hmm. control, it's so easy to see that the leaving is such a threat to that person's right. control. Right. And so one is you just need to start there in my mind. The second thing is once you see that and you assume everything else staying equal, don't assume that that person who was left or the, the person who was abusive during the relationship, they automatically have become a different person in their thinking in, in their, their intent right. and their behaviors. So, so if you just sort of go at this and go and say, okay, day, day, day one, 
couples together. Day two, and, and the abuse, this person was choosing to abuse their partner. And, and, and mm-hmm. day two, uh, the partner leaves, leaves with the kids. And um, there's no reason to think that that abusive uh, parent or partner has changed. Has changed. In <laughs> right. fact, you could easily see how they could be more agitated, ramped up, ramped right. up, scared, controlling, right. wanting to scare, losing their control, and wanting to find other means to continue to control or punish. And so, uh, one of the things that we have to talk about is is control, because right. when people hear control, um, they don't think of well, the person who's choosing to be violent thinks that they're disciplining their children. Right. And therefore, they have the right to reach right. past their the barrier now that the survivor has created and saying, I am my own autonomous person. I am parenting in a different way because the parenting that you've been engaging in is harming our children. Right. right? But that person choosing violence feels entitled to that. Right. Or they feel entitled to maintain that relationship with the survivor because of deeply held beliefs, right. other other beliefs. Right. So let's just be clear. There's a lot of people that don't understand what control means. Well, and I think part of it is is when people focus on and listen to the, the justifications, the rationale, or the like, um, I parent this way. I want my kids to do this. I want... And and she's depriving me of my my, right. my legitimate relationship with my right. kids. That they're that the one is that they're that they're looking for yelling and screaming and threats and and really obviously so the stereotype that somebody who is abusive or controlling is always going to look out of control is one of the things at play. Right. Here, for one, two is there that a positionality about wanting my kids to share in my tradition or culture isn't automatically wrong. Right. Okay. And so what people miss is, is that as well. Then they also miss, I think, this idea that um, um, I'm what I'm actually doing is is part of a pattern of of control, mm-hmm. and and they're missing the, the 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 method that that is only really visible in some cases when you look at the entire pattern of things. Right. And and that because that person who is Saying, well, I've got these, you know, deeply held beliefs. Um, they come across as so convincing in their mm-hmm. commitment. They don't look violent. They look sincere in their commitment to their kids' mm-hmm. mental health, well-being. And and I think when you combine that, I'm going to add in one more bit, you know, and you're right. This could be a day of me kind of adding <laughs> adding thoughts in, which is that when you, you combine that with low expectations. You and I were just talking about this the yeah, other day yeah. for men as parents. Yeah. When the, when the man is that that, that looks like parent. a desire to be a good oh, parent. It looks people... so. So when when this person then engages yeah. in endless litigation in the courts, then judges say, "Oh, look, he wants to be a good parent." He wants contact with his children so much. Instead of saying, "I love your judge's voice." That's a great. That's a great Elmer judge's voice. Like judges are court voice there but, today. But really, it's just it's it's such a disconnect. If if a if you know somebody is engaging in financial abuse via the courts, confusing that as good parenting to me is I don't understand how people have gotten there in their thinking. It, well, it's well, this very is, difficult. Well, to I think it's. I mean, understand. I think I think it's. It's, and we have a whole. We have a bunch of white papers on this. One is about how perpetrators manipulate systems, and I think this is one of the ways that the family courts are vulnerable to manipulation. Right. We have to name both pieces because right. it means the person who's actually doing this actually has to choose to do those behaviors. Right. And we'll talk about that related to the collaborative parenting in, a, in, in just a few minutes. But then the other system, the professionals, have to really be. Ref- Reflect or 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 that or choose to be vulnerable to this cultural expectation of low standards for men, and right. say, wait a second, just because somebody shows up is relentless, is really committed. Let me reflect on whether this is a a, a deep child centered focus, right? Or if this or is, is punitive, part, punitive towards part, the partner, or part of <laughs> litigation, or part of a pattern of 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 course of control. Has this person manipulated other systems? Right. In order to maintain their power and control, that's right. And 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 with a, a history of domestic abuse right. or domestic violence or coercive control, it is logical that if that person is continuing to engage in those behaviors via our systems, that means that they are trying to maintain their power and control. 
They and, and, they are yeah. very much trying to maintain their power and control. And, and I was thinking about this, which is, you know, post-separation coercive control can include physical violence. Yeah. It can include yeah. sexual assault. It can yeah. include stalking. It can include everything that that might have been yeah. happening with the couples. Before, prior. Yeah. And in fact, there are certain ways it can be scary because if we're not living together... Post-separation coercive control can include harming the children to punish the survivor. Well, this is... Right, and this is what I want to get to. Mentally, is, emotionally, physically harming right. the children to punish the right. survivor. So what I want to get to about some of the things, and that, that could have been happening with the couples together. Yeah. But, but I think often what gets pushed to the forefront in the behavior patterns of perpetrators post-separation is the, the targeting and the use of kids. Right. Uh, the targeting and the use of money yeah. and property, the targeting and the, the use of proxies and other people to harass and, to harass and control, but and the manipulation of systems like child protection and and and, and 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 criminal, criminal court, courts, right, family courts, yeah. and the leveraging of prior involvement with those systems. So now I'm going to take. The fact that family that child protection came and investigated my violence, but opened up the case in, in your name in the, in the mom's name. That's right, and I'm going to now take because most say, child protection right. opens up the case in, in the, the mom's name, name. Right, even though the father is the one who's causing the That's instability right. and violence. That's right, gender double standards. And, and <laughs> it's like it's like a little hashtag party. hashtag gender double standards. Um, and then the last thing I want to add is also carries. Uh, um, it's a place where what we call tier two systems. Issues around mental health addiction, you know, so those service providers and those issues take up, um, can really get supercharged in the family court environment as tools of manipulation, threats, and, 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 you know, things that get brought to the family court arena, sometimes with zero substance behind them. I was looking at some data from us, sorry, recently. And I think they said, and I, I really don't want to kind of point to it too much, but I think like one quarter of this, these particularly um, contested domestic abuse family court matters were, were, had fictional yes. allegations of mental health. There was no clinical there was back, no there's no clinical basis around it. Was just, it was just, it was a typical, she's crazy. Right. Well, again, I can't, you know, I can't, um, I can't, we can't disconnect this stuff. From cultural stereotypes right. about women being crazy, women being emotional, women lying about this abuse. again. Why? Why? Right. And lying about, this is why. Again, we have to really for professionals. We need to be really rigorous about how we're letting cultural biases and stereotypes and and attitudes uh, that are unfair mm -hmm. have no basis influence and make us more vulnerable to perpetrators' manipulation. I mean, right. I want to know that. Right. I don't want to be manipulated by a perpetrator. Yeah. And so I have to look and reflect and say, wait a second, am I vulnerable to being, you know, to when somebody says she's crazy, she's emotional, kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, well, maybe there's something I, I, in there. I, I, I want to get to a world where, where, where somebody says that and everybody around them, including their friends and family and professionals say, we, we were told that you were going to say that. <laughs> well, so let's talk about, some concerns we have about your patterns of behaviors of coercive control right. and domestic yes, violence. That's right. And but we, we were told you were going to say she was crazy. And we, we've, <laughs> and we've seen actually, we've seen, uh, you know, we get back stories of success where, where once uh, I'm thinking about one particular case where we are post separation. There was a number of years. The initial impression of the practitioner was that um, that while there had been violence when they were together. That there was no longer an issue, mm -hmm. and but because they used our mapping tool, they were able to identify the patterns of post-separation coercive control, right. and actually advocate successfully for changes in the way the system responded. Right. That made that mother and particularly those kids safer. But she said, the practitioner said, "Well, without the mapping tool, without your way of of approaching this, we wouldn't have named that. I I wouldn't have named that, and we we wouldn't have and I wouldn't have advocated." And she was amazing. She championed that that kind of perspective against other professionals' lack of understanding, right? And and so I think it, you know that we know that this can make a difference. And so your vision is not necessarily wrong or impossible. It's just we need more of it. We need a more lot of it. more of it. So so I wanted to kind of take that backdrop of the 
post-separation course of control to talk about risk and versus harm. Right. I I remember sitting in a bunch of meetings years ago over a period of time where there were these discussions around risk assessments or risk assessment tools. It's been a big part of the domestic violence field. People talk about risk assessments and, and systems like risk assessments to, to try to quantify um, in a way that they can understand. That may not be in alignment, by the way, yeah. with what the survivor right. understands. Well, I mean, is it in a combination of factors, having worked in the medical field? It's usually a combination of, yes, we want to be able to predict uh, with some form of accuracy, our risk, but also we want to protect ourselves we, from being accused of being the, of malfeasance We did this approved risk <laughs> assessment. I think you're right. And it's also a way to triage and manage resources right. because in systems, I mean, and these are all understandable kind of things. Right. right? The system has to do right. that. But and, at the same time, it's not doing it in a way that's working for survivors and kids. Currently. Well, there, there are gaps. And I don't, it's I don't, not even working for, for professionals. Right. The drift in the domestic violence and child protection field is huge because right. of professional dissatisfaction, right. because of how the systems themselves are responding to survivors, which is not why most workers got into the into the industry. They got into the industry to help kids right. and help survivors. Right. And when they see that that's not happening and that the very practices that are imposed upon them and mandated upon them are actually harming and limiting their ability to help those people then why would they want to continue to work in this yeah, industry it, at a low rate of pay, it, it, very it, thankless jobs? I do. See, look, I'm acknowledging professionals. I, I totally am acknowledging You do. Them. You yes. do acknowledge professionals yes. sometimes. It, it's I don't want real. them to feel beat upon. No, you me. actually, you, you know, you, I don't think it always comes through on this, uh, <laughs> on this podcast, but I know you and I know that you deeply care about professionals yes. and their well-being. And, yes. And, and I think you're talking about this attrition that happens when people feel like that their practice is out of alignment with their values and yeah. and all those things. And yeah. so, so, so when we talk about risk factors, you know, people will talk about things like, has there been, and we don't, I don't want to get into dynamic versus static risk factors because that's, right, right. that's a, that's a, that's a bigger conversation. But, but, you know, when you think about static risk factors, this is what people are often talking about, you know, has this, has the abuser strangled this person? Did they right. use a weapon? Right. Um, you know, where they, are they, are they, um, you know, have they been violent with them during pregnancy? Have they sexually assaulted? All these things, you know, are, are risk markers for the future potential of severe, potentially lethal violence what is against being, the adult but what survivor. what's being done with that? Right. What's well, functionally well, and practically being done well, with I that? Think, I think In the context of children, uh, nothing. Uh, okay. Well, then, you know, I was, again, this is where... <laughs> Zero. Well, I think it's, <laughs> so we don't lose everybody who's involved in risk assessment frameworks. I right. think risk assessment frameworks serve a purpose... And they can be useful in terms of, of of identifying scenarios where somebody genuinely may be at greater risk of, of lethality. Right. Targeting resources. I mean, I think there's a lot of teams out there that do a lot of really good work right. Right. around this. And you're pointing to this idea that risk assessment frameworks that, that catalog or kind of score or look at behaviors of the perpetrator or, or scenarios like leaving – or increasing depression or right. substance abuse of the perpetrator. That's dynamics. I said I wasn't going to talk didn't, about it. But I, you did. Yeah, I did. You know that those are really valuable, but they are not the same thing as describing the harm right. that that perpetrator's behavior has done to the children and their functioning. Right. As to a the, parenting choice. It doesn't connect it up to a parenting choice framework mm -hmm. usually at all. Right. And doesn't, and it doesn't, um, it doesn't really, so it doesn't help you articulate how this person's harmed the kids, harmed their functioning, harmed the functioning of the person as a parent, harmed the functioning of the family. It just, it's usually not at all on the radar of right. people who are doing risk assessment frameworks in this way that's very traditional. And, and so what it means is when you get to the child protection arena or the family court arena where child safety is supposed to be front and center. Right. The risk assessment framework doesn't give people the language. Yep. And the assessment framework that lets them say, this is how the person who was violent or coercively controlling has harmed the kids. Therefore, this is what we think they're likely to do in the future yeah. in the post-separation. Therefore, this for behavior change is recommended that actually changes behaviors right. and assesses behavioral change, right. not just attendance. Um, therefore, 
X, Y, and Z intervention is necessary, you know, the parole officer, whatever, whatever, however mechanism you can pull on to create that accountability. But currently that's not happening. And, and I get what you're saying where the risk, risk assessments have a functionality, but in the most common scenario of post-separation coercive control, risk assessments can actually inhibit, inhibit survivors because of the lack of understanding of the danger of post-separation control in the professional community and in the judicial community, can actually endanger survivors because it labels domestic abuse as historic. Right. Right? right. It's got a timeline right. around it. So, oh, well, he strangled, he attempted to strangle you three years ago. Right. But he, he hasn't done that most recently. So right. obviously he's not a danger to you. Well, well <laughs> this, is I, this is the way I started thinking about it. It, 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 it. it looks back, that part of it looks at back behavior. And like I said, yeah. I want to do justice to my colleagues yeah. Yeah. Where, they're, where they're often doing dynamic and static. So they're looking at, right. they are looking at the potential of escalating risk. In some cases, I don't think that really happens in a lot of family court environments, to right, be honest. Right. But I think it happens more in criminal court settings. Right. But what I what I do want to add to what you were just saying is that um, that it, it I think of it now as it looks backwards to the patterns. Right. It looks forward, mm-hmm. but it doesn't look at right now, mm-hmm. and and that's so important in the family court environment because I'm showing up as a survivor. Knowing my partner's history, obviously, Mm -hmm. having experienced it, worried about what they might do in the future, Mm -hmm. including if I ask for everything I want and deserve, and the court gives it to me. So what if I ask for full custody? What if I ask for full alimony? Alimony. Or or half of of the assets, which is what legally I, you know, So what risk factor frameworks don't really allow professionals to think about is, That person sitting in front of you who, like you said, may not have been physically assaulted in the last six months or year or two years, Mm -hmm. but now has taken this very big step to leave to end the relationship, is worried about what he's going to do to the kids, worried about what he's going to do to her, worried about the financial stuff, worried about all these things, and so walks into your office as a family court professional and says, I don't want alimony. Right. Oh, it's so common. Women leave behind assets because they don't want to have to fight with them. They don't want, and they don't want him to feel justified in being involved in her life because he'll use the money as his his emotional justification. Exactly. So, so we're dealing with we're not dealing with risk factors. Just we're. I mean, I want us to be forward thinking, and and look for danger and, and escalation. But I want us to be able to talk about and operationalize it in that moment where we can do things like, well, can. I want to understand this, you know, as the person working with you, whether I'm your attorney, right? I'm a psychologist doing an evaluation, a court, court lawyer, court, anybody. I would like to understand how his prior violence is shaping your, your way you're approaching family right. court and the right. dangers you feel like you're trying to navigate, including not just the dangers from him, but what your assessment is of our ability to help you. Because right. you, you may actually, uh, if you actually trusted us better to understand you might ask for more. You well, might actually try to navigate the system you differently. You know what? I don't know. I don't know about that, David. That's a bit of a stretch in my mind. Um, you know, there is no cultural understanding of how to navigate post-separation coercive control. Um, and there's a lot of entitlement. We believe still culturally that People are entitled to become aggressive and abusive um, via systems and retributive because a partner has left them. You don't. That's you, still a it, cultural it, it, accept, people don't accepted blank, right. practice. People, they don't blame the person doing that. Yeah. They say, "Oh, well, they're upset that you left." If you if you leave and me, I'm not going to give you a penny you for the me, kid. If you leave me, I'm not going to give you a penny. And people accept that as being okay. Right. And the courts accept that as being okay. Right. And so I think that it's a bit of a stretch to say that if survivors trusted the system more, I don't think survivors should touch no, trust no, no. I'm actually not giving that as, as an injunction. I'm right not giving. Now. That's they right. should be highly suspicious that's, of systems, I, and they should have concrete strategies to engage professionals to force them to do the right thing. That's what I want. I want educated survivors who push professionals into better practice. That's because right. that's what happened in the medical community. Right. Ask your doctor. Ask your doctor. Ask your doctor. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a campaign we're talking about. You know, mm-hmm. We're referencing a 
uh, the horrible ads in the U.S. I actually, hate I hate them. I, I hate that you know where they market to to <laughs> to to um, individuals about sort of medical interventions. And then say, go and ask your doctor, and, they, and then at the break, end they give a, it works. a twenty minute disclaimer right. about death and right. <laughs> side okay, so the conversation. But we're we really want educated survivors, and I I agree with you. We're not there yet, but I wanted right. to name that when when survivors come into family court, for instance. They're not only safety planning or assessing the perpetrator's response, but the, the, the professional itself. That's right. I want the to, professional I just to name themselves. And, and there are definitely professionals that I never engaged, right? Because I didn't believe that they were capable, right? And that I would be blamed, right. and it would trigger a series of interventions right. and focus on me and my children, right? Rather than focusing on the person who right. was who was choosing I, I, to do what they I were doing. I think the onus. I I I think we've put. Too much onus on and then blame on survivors to trust systems that don't understand their realities, particularly if they're black or brown or indigenous, you know, or, or, or you know, transgendered or any group that's experiencing, you know, sort of. Well, uh, just think know, about oppression how, how, and, and often, marginalization. how often does a woman going to refuge, which is what everybody says to do and in fact punishes a survivor if they don't do that. How often does going to refuge trigger a child protection inter- inter- investigation? Right. And how does that focus? Does that focus around the person who is being violent? Or does that focus on the person who left to try to save their lives right. and save their children's lives? So when you were talking before, <laughs> I was thinking about, about you talking about the culture and entitlement. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so it could be a nice segue to this, this collaborative parenting thing. Was that I hear a lot that uh, parents are entitled to a meaningful relationship with their kids. You know, that's one of the jobs of family courts is often to to foster meaningful relationships and, with their and kids. And thus far, meaningful relationship right. has only meant contact. Right. It right. hasn't assessed the quality of the parenting right. based off of domestic violence and coercive control. Right. So that's so, what it's meant. So so let's let's kind of move to and I, I think I'm, we're moving along pretty we well. Actually, I a, know. A rapid clip. I think it's the caffeine I had this morning. Okay. Yeah, I'm just saying, <laughs> in case anybody's wondering, um, that that. So I got thinking about collaborative co-parenting mm-hmm. and the concept, and it's it's a dominant framework in family courts in a lot of countries. Right. And and, and I want a lot of organizations that. Oh my God! That, I just and I'm going to kind of re- feed into collaborative co-parenting. That's right. And, and they do train, workshops and, they and do training workshops for parents. And, they do, and, and, and I, mandated workshops, right? Doesn't the court mandate the, the, in conflict that in, parents in, go to In some right? places, yeah, absolutely, because yeah, yeah. they, they see it as in the best interest of the kids. Right, right. And, and I really want to be clear. Again, I, you know, we're, we're, I'm always walking a fine line. We're, we, wanna, we want people to think critically, want people to reflect, but we also want to throw out, I'm sorry to use the baby with the bathwater kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is just that... Um, I think collaborative co-parenting is a is a good overall. It's a good framework. The question is, how does it apply to situations of domestic violence? Right. But more importantly, for me right now, is how is it used by systems as a lens to look at the the parenting behavior right. and the attitude of the person with a history of course control to the court proceedings, to their the other parent, to their kids. Not quite sure how the court landed in thinking that there would be good collaborative co-parenting if you had one parent who is constantly threatening to take custody of the children, constantly threatening in family court, constantly filing motions, constantly draining the assets of the other co-parent. I'm not quite sure how they landed in believing that those behaviors were collaborative co-parenting and wouldn't harm collaborative co-parenting. Well, I, I, Fundamentally, you are not a safe person if the response of your co-parent to every conflict is that they engage the courts in order to harass you into complying with what they want. So I, I think, I mean, I think there's lots of things that, that, that go into that and, and, and I don't know all the answers to it by far, but I, 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 I think about this idea that some of these conversations are very siloed. Mm-hmm. I, you look at the collaborative co-parenting literature or the um, um, the conversations, and I don't see anything almost on any. And I've been doing random searches, and I'll totally unscientific random searches yes. of the of the thousands of collaborative co-parenting sites Websites, out there, yeah. and and they very few of them mention domestic violence. And if they do mention them, it's using the context of um, this doesn't fit with that, which is which is one answer. You know, you mean domestic 
abuse and domestic violence don't fit if with you're collaborative victim, And they're often directed to the victim. And if you're a victim of uh, domestic violence, you know that um, you should be looking for alternative methods. You know, there's, you know, whether it's go to supervised visitation, have no contact. Right. I mean, there's lots of things that are really about managing safety and contact, again, that, are, that are, can be very useful. But I don't see, I haven't seen a lot around this. Uh, and if I'm missing something, people should, should, should write in. I, we're always trying to get people to write in. And, and tell us you know, what tell they us want. The one and, and, and engage in a dialogue with us. And, but that but that I often find, like I found with like, so on the child protection side, um, you'll have these parenting programs or these uh, family preservation programs, or you'll have um, uh, infant and maternal health. And, and part of the way they relate to the issue of domestic violence is saying, we don't accept those cases into our programs. Right, they just and so it's, it becomes a non-issue. They, they no they're, only, they're only That's doing right. that from the lens of physical violence. They're not doing that from the lens of, of coercive control. They have no framework around that. And you know, and it's, there, it's a blind it's a blind spot in their in their in their practice. Well, I think there's often of the people who kind of and and the funders and the and the policy people who look at those things. Uh, there's a naivete, to be honest. And I can't tell kind of where it falls on the spectrum, but I think there's there's sort of this idea that those programs will never have that issue in them present. And so actually I heard, and this is a little bit of digression, you know, when I was working with... But some, are they some, screening? Well, well, but, 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 Actively? Well, they're screening. They, well, I'll tell you a story. And this has shown up more than once. Or are they the, just stating it and, and, and accepting the goodwill of people? Well, what I heard back from a practitioner was... Um, and this was in a nurse practitioner um, um, infant and maternal uh, health program, and they were looking to support high-risk families and, and vulnerable kids. She said, I don't look for it, even though right. I'm supposed to, right. because if I find it, I'm supposed to kick this family out of the program, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's in the interest of oh, the, the mom, mom and the kids, and the kids. And the, for me to do that. And so what she does, and I've seen that in actually in child protection agencies where they set up what are supposed to be uh, uh, parallel processes for screening out of domestic violence for, for programs or situations they shouldn't be in. You get people who actually ignore the screening, like you're saying, right? or use these very narrow de- definitions of domestic violence, right. like an is- incident of physical it's violence, a, like yeah, you're saying. Yeah. And and then they end up with a family with intense coercive control right. and violence, but they don't have the skills, the supervision, the support no. to look at no. it. So, so what I did was I, I pulled... What I pulled was a random, totally unscientific, collaborative co-parenting website. Uh, website. And I want to talk about the six things that they highlight. Co-parenting after divorce, six guiding principles for success. You see these everywhere. You're oh, given these when right, you these go pamphlets through everywhere. And, and, and so, yeah. and in that, um, and, and I want you to think about if this framework was actively applied by professionals in the family court environments, it could be judges, it could be evaluators, right. around the behavior of the perpetrator. Right. And in, it was connected to a good assessment of that pattern of behavior right. and harm. Right. And it was brought into that kind of family court process, what it would be like. So how well do we think, I'm going to, I'm going to, you can go through them. I'll go through, I'm going to ask you this like a quiz. Okay. okay. <laughs> how well do you think domestic violence perpetrators do it in Accepting what is. Oh that, my God! That, that, that is the that's the phrase. Accept what Accepting is. Accepting what is. And that uh, not very well. Okay, right. And 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 would we be able to see? They know what they want. They know what they want. They know right. when they're uncomfortable. They know how they, to and they, to, they don't have demand, control. They point know how fingers to demand. and blame. They know how to throw a, pitch a pitch a very adult fit. Right. But if we went looking for the absence of that or the opposite of that, which is trying to force things, control things. You, right. You often would see those behaviors. Removing liberties of co-parents, right. so on and so forth, yeah. So just, again, I want people to be thinking in their mind about this, but this was actively put in there. Uh, put the children first every day. Wow. How well is that average domestic violence perpetrator doing at putting their children first every day? Well, they couldn't see that them abusing their partner was harming their children, so... Well, you know, you know? It's, it, you know what... What you're actually bringing in, it's actually fun, I'm going to jump around, is it, it says, these are two other things, so I'm going to cover four of them ready. Say sorry. Okay. And learn from your mistakes. So we put together, put your kids first. Right. Say you're sorry. And learn from your mistakes. Learn from your mistakes. How would it, in court, in, in really kind of basic ways, would a domestic violence perpetrator show up? And, and what I would translate it to is, has he admitted to what he did? Yeah. 
Has he acknowledged the harm it's caused his partner and his kids? Yeah. Has he apologized? And is he is there a plan for reparations? Okay. So here's here's as it stands right now, as a collaborative co-parenting lens. With the first one was accept what is. Yeah. They're looking at the mom and saying, accept that you married an abusive human. <laughs> accept it. You did it. You married him. You procreated with him. You need to accept that, sister. Okay. Right. What's the second one? The second one was... I'm doing, uh, the, I'm doing the survivor. You did. Sorry. Put children first every day. Don't have conflict or don't be perceived to be standing in opposition to your co-parent right. and their parenting or else we're going to blame you. So, so this is where the parental alienation... This is where parental alienation and, but it's how, comes in. How, Right, so you're you're speaking to okay. Keep going. You know, okay. I'm having fun with this one. Say sorry and learn from your mistakes. Say you're sorry for resisting your abuser's abuse, and for disclosing it because that's uncomfortable to us. We don't know how to deal with it, and apologize. Next, what's the next one? I'm sorry. All of a sudden, I'm like I'm thinking about. Groups of people in the United States who are saying, don't bring up our history of racism because it right. hurts our feelings. It hurts our feelings. <laughs> it hurts our feelings. It's the, it's don't the, tell it's, us about it's, our it's historical the, it, genocide. It's, it's, it's very it's, uncomfortable Right. There's a lot, for of, us. lot of parallels here. You're right? a horrible person. Right. Okay. For bringing this. Okay. Wait, I'm having uh, fun le- now. Learn from your mistakes. Just be quiet. <laughs> okay. Comply. Right. Just All be right. quiet and comply. Um, uh, the next one, and let's not lose the, the focus on the perpetrator. I know okay, you and okay, I talked okay, about okay. we would do this. Is compliment your ex. I love this one. This is so. This is so. Mike, when you said to me one about uh, that's not on this particular site. Um, uh, if you don't look your ex in the eye, then they're gonna then, charge then you, you. Then with you are not being impeding, a collaborative parent. Impeding co- if I don't look my perpetrator in the eye, I'm impeding co-parenting. Right. What? Who made these things? That's right. And so and so I want you know. So I want you to think about. Because what it says here is underneath that, when your children on stairs share a story with you about not your only ex. That, not only that, sorry, yeah. pause. Culturally, yes. not all cultures look people in the uh, no, eye that's right. because it's a, it's a, it's a feeling of offense right, right. and violence and intrusion. Right. So professionals need to... Right. So underneath the compliment your ex. So again, I want to I operationalize this a little bit in terms of holding, perpetrating parents accountable. When your children share a story with you about your ex... Challenge yourself to compliment your ex parenting. So I want you to think about so if that we were means, looking at Oof, sorry. Oh yeah. That means that if a child comes back from an abuser's house and they tell you that they weren't fed the whole time or that all of their clothing and their belongings were taken away because they didn't go to church with the perpetrator, I'm supposed to compliment my I, I ex? Ho- I, I hope it's not that bad. I mean what I think they would say in that case. I think you're right. <laughs> I, I think it's is is that he bought, took them out to ice cream and did all the things that you wouldn't do with them to make you look bad, then you're supposed to compliment them. So that, right. that I hope they're not as bad. But, but I want to I keep the focus on this. If we held perpetrators to this standard, mm-hmm. you know, what we see a Would lot of perpetrators is undermining, is undermining behavior, criticizing, pointing fingers. Right. And so I think so many perpetrators would just fail um, this this very basic test, which it says there are so many opportunities to show your kids that you see good in their other parent. Right. So if we just said to a perpetrator going to family court, describe all the ways in the last month that you have told your kids the other person, your, your ex is a good parent and mm-hmm. describe that to me that if we start using those things as, 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 as a measure and these things together, I don't want to say one thing by itself. Right. That, that we would be shifting when the focus around the victim's decision-making right. and how they're presenting and putting the onus on the perpetrator of the violence and on right. the court to focus on the perpetrator of the violence. I just think that it's ridiculous that the court right. is mandating that we that we have to compliment our, our ex. Listen, right. if, if I'm co-parenting with somebody who has a history of abusing me and a history of abusing children, um, you know, the best I can say to them when they come home is, I'm really glad that you had a good experience right. with your with right. your other parents. Yeah, right. You know, that I, I'm not going to sit there and praise their parenting, especially when I know that the children are right. are navigating somebody who's still. You know, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, it's unreasonable. Right. It's and an unreasonable. Right. But I, I so this is this back and forth between you and I is really interesting because that experience 
for you or other survivors is, is real? And I'm really just speaking to the to experiences of survivors that I know. I'm not right. directly speaking to my experience, just right. to be clear. Yeah. That, that you know, sometimes what the best you can do when you know that somebody right. is still a hot, you know, head or they're still coercively right. controlling right. and and they are prioritizing their needs above child needs or child development or their anxiety right. or controlling their environment and also trying to inc- control the children because they can't manage, then you the best you can do is say, I'm really happy you had good contact right. with your parent. Right. And- your other parent. I support that. I support good contact right. with your other parent. I support safe contact. I support connected contact. Right. But when that's not happening, right. why should we lie? Right. And so, so I think why that, should we make things up? So I, your because that's harmful to children. Right. That's harmful to children. People lying to your children and telling them that their experience of harm isn't real is damaging to children. So, what I want to do with that, with what you just said, because I think that that experience of survivors who are in that situation is so important to be listened to. And it's often, so often disregarded and misunderstood and misinterpreted as parental resistance or parental alienation. One of the worst things about being with a coercive controller is that they make reality. They tell you what reality is and it's extremely violent and it's extremely gaslighting and you feel crazy. And once you extricate yourself from that situation, you will not lie to your children about their experience right. of other people because that is damaging and sets them up to be abused in the future. So, so super passionate about that. You are, and for good reason, because I think what you're saying uh, is that we need to put those behaviors in the context of the behavior of the course of controller and to see their protective nature. Because I think we a lot of times we need to be able to tell our children right. that certain behaviors are damaging. Right unacceptable and that it's not good behavior right if we don't do that right our children grow up and right. they adopt those behaviors in relationship and they believe that it's okay and they and, and you know really if you think about abuse as a tactic of control rather than as a tactic of losing control an abuser who continues their behavior is just constantly trying to get control and what they want over the world. And they're really good at it. And everybody around them sort of scuttlebutts around them and gives them what they want because they don't want to deal with it. And this is true in just in general life. If you think about the trajectory of an abuser through real life, abusing wait staff, abusing bank people, because they'll get what they want. Right. Because everybody folds. And and you're you're talking about the fact that people don't have a great roadmap in my mind for um, holding people who do bad things accountable for owning it, owning the harm, claiming mm-hmm. the harm, mm-hmm. repairing it, mm-hmm. and that tied to that, they don't have a good sense of that the person who's received it has every right not to trust, to be angry, to speak to the truth of those behaviors, and to not be in danger of being accused of being a troublemaker, of being difficult, about being a resistant wanting parent, revenge. Or wanting revenge, <laughs> that there's this very tight, and again, I, I can't separate it out for gender gender standards and expectations of men and women in my head, that, that, that what ends up becoming the dominant narrative in family courts is play nice. And that means what we're saying to survivors is don't talk your truth. And if you talk yeah, your truth I to don't your like, kids. I don't like saying talk your truth because it makes it sound very, very subjective. No, I don't behaviors mean are in, Behaviors are incredibly concrete right. and they have particular okay. outcomes. So don't speak the truth. Don't speak the, the truth. truth. Maybe Thank I you. may appreciate Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate because that. Because that behavior yeah. happened yeah. and that behavior had consequences and right. caused trauma. Right. And, it, and you're speaking to this idea that, that within the course of control, we, we, people throw around the term gaslighting, they, they, you know, that, that manipulation of reality and perception right. and what's wrong and right. And, and I think that systems, I'm always the one who's, you know, saying this thing about to my colleagues, you know, to really think about where you're vulnerable to buying into the narrative that a survivor who is protecting their kids wants to help them navigate 
the emotional challenges of relating to another parent who is violent. It's not just the emotional challenges of relating right. to another violent parent. It's a really deep desire to raise healthy, good children. Right. And frame reality for them and say, this behavior has this result. Right. If you want to be connected to people, if you want to collaborate with other people, and you want to be a good human, then you cannot engage in these behaviors. Right. It will destroy your relationships. It will harm your families. It will harm your relationship with yourself. So you really will feel tremendous right. amount of shame and, and guilt. So I want I want to I want to put that next to what you're saying because you're you're talking about us having space in our culture, in our professional assessments to really value the healing and parenting work and the truth telling. Too. Of that a survivor around the abuse and the violence and about what it means for kids at a very deep level for their relationships for the future. I'm just like I, I have to say yeah. I'm I'm feeling a tremendous amount of emotion right now. Yeah. Because the most damage right. that's done to both adult and child survivors is to tell us that we cannot speak about what happened to us. And if we do, we're the party that is doing the wrong right. thing. We are unforgiving. We are the problem. And that cultural, ex that experience is culturally supported in many different ways by the way the court systems, the family courts, and professionals respond to our disclosures. And they take our disclosures and they hurt us with them. They hurt us again and again and again with our disclosure of harm. They use our disclosures to blame us, to create accountability for us and our, you know, and we stayed. It was our choice. We didn't call the police. We didn't do this. And it's incredibly traumatic. It is more traumatic to experience that form of gaslighting from professionals and agencies and the culture around us than often it was the initial perpetration. And that. That is a that's a that's a crisis that we experience daily as survivors, as survivors of child abuse, as survivors of coercive control and domestic violence, and and we have to we have to change that. It is it is so damaging, and it causes us to go silent. It causes us to not engage your services. It is a primary impediment to efficiency and effectiveness of our services. So it's a very simple thing in my mind to say that we need to learn how to stop doing that. And it will increase engagement. It will increase efficiency. It will increase people reaching out and into the systems and asking for help. But if our disclosures fundamentally are used to harm us, why would we step into that space with you? Why? Why would we want to be hurt over and again and again and again? You know, and I see survivors who stepped into the systems believing that the systems were on their side and they had integrity and they were going to help them only to discover that there's tremendous confusion, poor practice, and that the system is incredibly victim blaming. And it becomes, it, it becomes terribly harmful. I, uh, love so much what you just said and you know i hope people who are listening can can hear the and feel the emotion i can sitting across from you and i i don't think i have anything to add to it's, that it's creating a barrier it's so simple right it's creating a barrier right yeah. To the shared goal of... Absolutely. Of, of our common goals and values of keeping our kids safe, safe right. and, and keeping survivors right. safe are is completely right. impeded by that. Yeah. Yeah. So I invite <clears throat> professionals who are listening to, to, to really pause and, and hear and deeply listen to what you're saying and, and to think that uh, and be aware that part of the solution is what we say over and over again is this pivot to the perpetrator and start talking about don't put the survivor's feelings, choices under the microscope. Put the put the perpetrators. And it's a very act of step and yeah. stepping forward yeah. 
and 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 making a disclosure yeah. becomes a danger to us and it is a danger to us right now it is a huge right. danger to right. us then why would we step into your right. space right and i remember i remember when we talked to ashley donahue a few months ago about her as an aboriginal woman other aboriginal women saying we don't disclose we don't engage mainstream services we don't do this because not only is you know there's just so much danger to us in so many different ways in our kids that, mm-hmm. and so i think we need to see the logic of that mm-hmm. the justification yeah so to wrap this up and this is i i i've enjoyed this i mean it, mm-hmm. I, we've covered so much ground and and so much when you share that i it, to me it it just is it's such a deep wound yeah it really hurts. Yeah. I mean, it really, it really keeps so many people in danger. Right. And and once you've experienced it over and over and over again, in various ways, and you've had that biofeedback loop where, okay, you put yourself in counseling. Well, the counselor, you know, engages in similar behaviors, and you say, wait, wait a second. You really start to believe that you're the problem, not the person who right. is violent to you, right. but your disclosure right. feels like the problem. Right. And, yeah. and my, I was writing about this this morning. I want people to, to, to listen to this and understand and have empathy for survivors' mm-hmm. experience of being afraid that disclosures are going to be used against right. them and the harm that happens to them when they are. And to understand that part of the solution is, again, this pivot to the perpetrator um, because, it's, it's again, it's not... We keep pathologizing and problematizing is that a word i don't know problematizing now survivors and and the and and there's a really just like the you know even when we think we're helping them we're spending all this time talking about them versus turning that lens on to that well i think i think that that's very deeply linked to our evidentiary procedures again which came about at a time when women were property um and that the loss of that that relationship or the loss of that custody was viewed as loss of property. Right. Like family court is supposed to divide property. They're not very good at, at including kids as property. That's right, they include kids as, as property. property. Um, you know, so so I think that that's part of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I I I really think that the other piece of that that's super important is that systems haven't had a efficient and effective strategy in behaviorally assessing both people's behaviors in the case of false allegations. And they're so confused as to what is real and what is not because they're not doing the right assessment tactics. They're not diagnosing the problem correctly or placing that in the right place. I'm so not going there today because I could go to talking about how we map both people's with cross allegations mapping both people's patterns of behavior and course of control. That's a whole other topic for well, another day. I think that's the next topic. We well, should, we, we, we can talk about that. On. But to wrap this up, you know, I, my plea is, is, is empathy is not enough. Yeah. Understanding is not enough. Changing practice is what we need to do. And, and to look the next time you look at a collaborative parenting website, you, you're thinking about the concept of collaborative parenting and this idea it's the best interest of the kids Think about how well the perpetrator in front of you is doing on those standards right. and start operationalizing it, right. you know, to wait, what, what exactly is this person doing to put the best interest of the kids ahead of their own? How have they done historically with that? How well have they complimented and supported their kids' relationship with the other parent, you know, and, but operationalize it and think about gender double standards in here because that's, that's so critical because if you don't, then it's easy to turn these things against yeah. against survivors and and think about um, you know um, what they're doing to acknowledge their mistakes and 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 so again you you've got somebody don't just think about risk going forward think about the harm they've already done and have they owned it and and have they mm-hmm. apologized and they've made behavior changes and what are they doing to become more trustworthy do not look at this as as the violence ended when the uh, the danger ended when the couple separated think about that post separation course of control yeah. and what that means for the kids and please you know write us about this episode we know the family court stuff on our twitter feeds and and um and and our uh our trainings they get so much attention so we're wondering yeah. you know if you, this is gets a lot of attention please respond comment um and i hope you've enjoyed this episode it's it's i think it's we went rain, it's, it's raining, raining quite here. A bit here yeah and you probably you can hear, hear it bit, in the background because we have a, a metal roof so um 
So, you know, from very, very soggy autumnal Connecticut. Yes. Um, this is partnered with the survivor, and I'm Ruth Stearns Mandel um, from the Safe and Together Institute. And I am David Mandel from the Safe and Together Institute. And um, if you um, want to follow us on our personal Twitter feeds, we never talk about this. Yeah. Um, I think mine is at David G. Mandel. You may know better than me. <laughs> I think so. I, I, I'm going to check that. You <laughs> and know. mine is uh, at Survivor Strong 3. And our, our Safe and Together Institute website is safeandtogetherinstitute.com. Academy.safeandtogetherinstitute for our trainings. There's a 15% discount. Discount with the code PARTNERED, all lowercase. And we have events coming up, a European North American Conference, January 13th and 14th. Uh, we are, um, we'll be doing our webinar series in January and February, 2022. And I think we are out. out. 